Today we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Welcome to Bill Myers Inspires. My idea for this show was to invite guests and get the conversation started, to take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. And we encourage our listeners to look within themselves to take decisive action to make a positive difference. Welcome to Bill Myers Inspires. I'm your host, Bill Myers, and I am so excited that you are joining us today, and I am very excited also about our guest. You'll probably hear me say that every week. I am excited, but I am. It is so um, uh, it, it is special to be able to share dialogues, uh, meaningful dialogues, with professionals and um, and that. So I, I and 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 people that you respect and honor and uh, people who have uh, wonderful gifts that they bring to the world. So it is a blessing, and I will forever be excited to have these shows. Um, I am excited to be here on the Inspired Choices Network, one that working with this very wonderful team uh, to put these shows together. So I generally always like to start the show with a quote, and uh, so this show uh, is not any different. This particular quote uh, is actually a series of excerpts from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Nobel Peace Prize address in 1964. If a man is to redeem his spiritual and moral lag, he must go all out to bridge the social and economic gulf between the haves and the have-nots of the world. <laughs> Poverty is one of the most urgent items on the agenda of modern life. There is nothing new about poverty. What is new, however, is that we have the resources to get rid of it. The time has come for an all-out war against poverty. The rich nations must use their vast resources of wealth to develop the underdeveloped, school the unschooled, and feed the unfed. Ultimately, a great nation is compassionate, is a compassionate nation. No individual or nation can be great if it does, if it does not have a common concern for the least of these. My guest today is a soldier in the fight for justice and a fierce advocate for families and children and, uh, and, and equity uh, in America. Her name is Jennifer Jones Austin. Jennifer Jones Austin has more than 20 years of leadership management and advocacy experience working for the ad advancement of underserved children, individuals, and families. Ms. Jones Austin is the CEO and Executive Director of the Federation of Protestant Welfare Agencies, a prominent social policy and advocacy organization with 200 members 
of human service agencies operating throughout New York City. Prior to joining the FPWA, Ms. Jones Austin served as a senior vice president of United Way of New York City, the city of New York's first family services coordinator appointed by Mayor Bloomberg, deputy commissioner for the city's administration for children's services, civil rights deputy bureau chief for New York State, Attorney General Elliot Spitzer, and Vice President for Learn Now Edison Schools, Inc. Throughout her career, Jennifer Jones Austin has chaired and served on several influential boards, commissions, and task forces. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio appointed her as co-chair of his mayoral transition in 2013, a leader of his UPK workgroup, that designed the full-day universal pre-kindergarten initiative and a leader of his Jobs for New Yorkers task force. She was the co-chair of the New York City Department of Education Capacity Framework Advisory and a member of the Plain, Plan New York City Advisory Board. She served as chair of the City of New York Procurement Policy Board and co-chair of the New York State Supermarket Commission. Presently, Ms. Jones Austin serves as a board member and spokesperson for the National Marrow Donor Program and board member of the New York City Board of Correction, the New York Blood Center, and the Fund for Public Housing. She also serves on the Human Services Council. Previous board services include the New York Women's Bar Association Foundation, Children for Children, Citizens Committee for Children, the ICLA Da Silva Foundation, and the Bethany Baptist Church Child Development Center. Ms. Jones Austin earned her law degree from Fordham University School of Law and a master's degree in management and policy from New York University Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service and a bachelor's degree from Rutgers University. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome today my special guest, Jennifer Jones Austin. Welcome. Good afternoon. Good to be with you. Very glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, I am. it is a blessing to have you here today, and um, I am grateful for that. And I want to um, start our conversation as we were uh, the topic of today's show, of course, is dealing with systemic racism. Um, and we had a discussion about this, and you mentioned a couple of key points, but I just want to open that general uh, talk topic up so that you can establish your thoughts on systemic racism. So, you know, um, I'll begin by sharing that this is, as we all are appreciating right now, an issue that is uh, at the forefront of many people's minds, and it is the topic of conversation in many places, not just at uh, the dinner tables of persons of color, as in many years, uh, you know, in, in, in many years, for many years, it has been the topic of conversation at people's dinner tables, people of color primarily, uh, in terms mm -hmm. of thinking about the impact of systemic racism on them. Uh, it, it may be at other people's uh, dinner tables 
more from uh you know not appreciating that maybe their their conversations their thoughts their actions contribute to systemic racism uh it's been brought to light because of the recent killings uh and incidences incidents uh concerning persons of color uh you know losing li- their lives being uh fired upon by uh police officers and white civilians in in America and because of the COVID-19 pandemic and its disproportionate impact on persons of color and in particular black and brown people. Uh, Mm -hmm. What's important to know about this and appreciate about systemic racism is that our society, many of us in the society have been uh, conditioned to believe that racism uh, is a thing of the past, that, 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 you know, we're no longer sicking dogs on people when they attempt to register to vote or uh, we're no longer, you know, seeing people standing uh, 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 alongside, um, you know, like a, a, you know, a a police tape or a a line preventing them from hurling themselves upon young persons wanting to integrate a public school or a public institution. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. we no longer see people being denied uh, like, you know, like before everybody's eyes, a right to a job or a right to go to a school, that type of thing. So they think it's no more. It's no longer. Mm -hmm. And what they don't appreciate is that systemic racism has taken root in the society from its very inception, and it continues to exist in our society, in every pillar of our society. So systemic racism is both structural and institutional in nature. And what that means is that the structure, the, you know, the underpinning of racism that began with slavery and um, an institution in and of itself that said that black persons were less, um, you know, less, uh, they were, they were less human. They were less than. They were actually chattel. They were property. Uh, and Mm -hmm. a mindset that then set in that allowed for people to see black persons as less than. When slavery ended, it didn't change that mindset that black persons Mm -hmm. were less than by those who wanted to believe that. The formal institution of slavery ended. But systemic racism, this belief that one race, one that white people are superior to black people, took root then in other institutions. It took mm-hmm. root in um, our education system. It had already been there by denying slaves the right to, you know, the right to learn, but it continued in the public education system and creating less, uh, you know, a, a less quality lower quality schools in our communities than in white communities and even resourcing mm-hmm. them differently with funding. It took root in um, uh, housing, you know, deciding where black persons could live, what they were, you know, el- where they were eligible to live and what funds they were eligible to uh, make, uh, you know, take to take advantage of when it came to lending and credit and the like, which kept them from attaining property and living in certain places. So it took place in the form of housing. And you know, and again, both housing by way of home ownership or purchasing, but also where you could live. Did you live among white people? No, because you were less than. It took root in, in the form mm-hmm. of health care. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It took form in the root of criminal justice and the policing of black communities uh, versus white communities. This perception that black people commit more crime. No, we don't commit more crime, 
but it's just the, the American uh, uh, justice system and law enforcement system, system has determined beginning, you know, way back, uh, right after slavery uh, and the Jim Crow laws all the way through today with, um, you know, the war on drugs and the over-policing of black and brown communities stopping the frisk in certain places. Institutionally, they would decide that racism would continue in law enforcement and then in incarceration. So what people need to understand is that the structure, it began with slavery and the mindset and the, and the reason why, the rationale around, you know, the, there being an economic value add to having cheap, free labor in the part of black persons, it then continued and persisted. That structure now mm-hmm. has been embedded in so many of our pillars, and that's institutional racism. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's very interesting because it's like it, it's an octopus, you know what I mean, uh, that from, from the mm-hmm. actual body comes all of the limbs, those being the institutions and the things that, that are offshoots of. And so, therefore, all of our institutions, um, you know, ultimately uh, derive um, and were formalized and concretized in the United States Constitution. And that mindset and attitude uh, was embedded there. And so, uh, right. you know, all of these institutions and whatnot, it's kind of like trying to uh, uh, address a single, ten- you know, tentacle and suggest, well, we can we can cure this when, in fact, it really is like uh, making a cake with rotten eggs and then later trying to figure out how can you extract the rotten egg. Uh, the cake is foul. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? At the core. Absolutely. So, and, 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 you know, one of the things that I often say to people when they say, well, we've got, you know, all of this legislation that, you know, came forth uh, that was, you know, achieved through the Civil Rights Movement. We've got the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which outlawed discrimination in places of a public accommodation. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that outlawed discrimination in, you know, in, in voting eligibility on the basis right. of race. We've got the Fair Housing Act of 1968 that outlawed discrimination in housing practices, affirmative mm-hmm. action, and you know there are others that you know have come forward in more recent years. How could we still have racism if we've got those laws? And <sighs> building on your point, what I tell people all the time is that the laws dictate behavior. The laws right. say if you break the law, you will be penalized. You will be fined. You may be thrown in jail. You could be imprisoned. Laws right. are intended to deter um, illegal behavior, uh, and they will penalize you if caught. If you're found com- uh, breaking the law, you will be penalized. What laws mm-hmm. do not automatically do is change mindsets, values, and beliefs. So simply because you develop a Civil Rights Act and say you can't discriminate against somebody if you own a restaurant, you, you, have to, you have to allow them to come in and eat, doesn't mean that you really believe that they have a right to be there. doesn't mean that right. you value them as a customer in the same way that you do a white person, and that's why we still have racism. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's just layers of sprinkles and, and frosting on that rotten cake, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, really. Mm-hmm. So- that's exactly right. So, uh, you know, it is, we are here today having a, a, a wonderful conversation on systemic racism with my guest, Jennifer Jones Austin. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires, and we're going to take a break right now, and we'll be right back. 
Today, we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Bill Myers Inspires as he and his guests take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. Emmy Award-winning actor Bill Myers is an accomplished actor, jazz musician, filmmaker, writer, educator, and speaker. As a biracial man who's both black and white, Bill leverages his background, talent, and voice through creativity, compassion, and connection as activism for social justice to focus on uniting the divide and compelling change. Bill Myers Inspires encourages listeners to look within themselves and take decisive action to make a positive difference. For more information, visit his website, BillMyersInspires.com, and sign in for the latest news and updates. Are you a subject matter expert? Are you here to share your expertise with an audience waiting to hear from you in only the way you can deliver? Are you ready to have your voice amplified across the airwaves? Inspire Choices Network has a global radio platform streaming to millions of people across the world. Professionally produced and supported by an accomplished team every step of the way, you can broadcast from anywhere in the world knowing your voice matters and we ensure it is delivered with ease and efficiency. Eager to hear your message, the world awaits. Contact us today to become an Inspire Choices Network radio host. Email become a host at inspirechoicesnetwork.com. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires here on the Inspire Choices Network. We're here every Friday. 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's get back to the conversation. We're back. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires, and I'm here with my special guest, Jennifer Jones Austin. And uh, before I go any further, Jennifer, I, I must uh, say something publicly. Um, Yesterday was your birthday, and uh, oh. I just want to, <laughs> and I don't want to break tradition, but last week we had a birthday that was also on October the 1st, um, I guess last week, Richard Probst, and so I don't want to break with that tradition and, and give any sort of uh, special treatment to him that I wouldn't do you, so here we go, oh. happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear Jennifer, happy birthday to you, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. That gave me a lot of joy. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, Jennifer, we're talking about systemic racism, and uh, and I really do appreciate that first segment because I think that you laid the groundwork um, to, in a, in a more general sort of global sense understanding of systemic racism. Now, you've spent a good deal of your career um, in the social services arena and advocacy of uh, underprivileged families and children. And so I would like to uh, now turn our attention to how systemic racism manifests and affects 
that particular segment, which is probably why you're an advocate. Uh, there's something to fight for. So, Well, you know what? Um, what I'm going to do is begin by giving you a present-day example. And okay. I'm going to tie it to our... Um, I'm going to tie it to COVID and education. So okay. um, this is how I see it presenting in this moment. Uh, across the nation... Uh, uh, school communities have been um, riddled with, um, you know, challenges presenting as it concerns educating children in this COVID moment. And what we've seen is that in uh, many, many, many communities, they're struggling to get it right. Uh, they are struggling with whether to have children in the classroom, whether to have them at home, whether to have a hybrid. Uh, they struggle with, you know, what education should look like. What can they teach in this moment? They have educators uh, in the main who have not been uh, trained on how to conduct online classes. In some instances, they've got hybrid models going on where the teacher is trying to figure out how to teach to the class that is before the, before her or him and also teach to people who children who are learning online, who are in their homes or elsewhere learning online. Well, here's mm -hmm. what's challenging and what we know. We know that before COVID, children of color, many in many instances, are uh, low-income children of color uh, and more low-income, more children of color than, than white children uh, are living in households where they do not have access to the technology that allows them to learn remotely. Additionally, in many households, uh, children of color uh, don't have broadband access. Across the nation, we see that high internet, internet speed is lacking in low-income communities of color, woefully mm -hmm. lacking. Additionally, we already know that um, in, an, in this nation, we've long been plagued with the problem of an educational achievement gap along racial lines that black and brown children um, are not excelling at the levels they should they should be. And what we've been told is that, and what we know, it doesn't have anything to do with their aptitude and their capacity to learn. It has everything to do with the learning conditions that, it, that, they, that they already find themselves in, dilapidated schools, um, you know, low-quality teaching, not having the mm -hmm. additional resources and supports that they sometimes need. Now, let's add to all of that that many low-income black and brown children also have as parents the people who are on the front lines having to still go out and work in the midst of COVID-19. Essential workers so you're speaking of. Essential workers, yes. Okay. So all okay. of this contributes to a situation where the research is now suggesting that uh, for the first several months of covid when schools had to immediately shut down, all children, you know, lost some learning. The research is showing that for white children, it's estimated that they will have lost about one-third of the school year. But for black and brown children, and, and particularly low-income children, uh, but mainly, you know, they say black and brown across the board, but, you know, it's, it's, it's deeper for low-income uh, low children, they will likely lose as much as 10 months, the equivalent of one school year, 
just mm. from having fallen behind from March through May, March through June. And well, I figure three times as high. Three times three as high. Three times as high. Three My times goodness. as high. And we knew this going into the summer months. And now we're still having these challenges. And so that learning loss is going to grow all the more. Well, here's where racism presents itself. We've had school districts who said, you know what, we're going to just keep pushing, 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 try to reopen, but have not done the concurrent planning to ensure that if they can't reopen, that the experience of black and brown children in communities not having the Internet access, not having the technology, needing face-to-face contact because they've already been struggling, they have not developed, and this is happening across the country, the you know the yeah. alternative curriculum and instru- curricula and instruction to be able to be there and support their needs. Additionally, what they haven't done is figured out, you know, how to in instances where the children are not showing up during the day because their parents may be at work as essential workers, how to mm-hmm. disrupt a system that says that their parents are now neglectful and now are being referred to the child welfare systems. So what I'm getting at is that you knew going into this that black and brown children across the country are already disadvantaged by our education system. And rather than lean in and think about, well, how do we make their experience more productive, more beneficial, you don't think about that and you focus on on one prong of the two-pronged problem. Additionally, We've seen across this nation that in more affluent communities and mainly white communities, people have taken to creating what they call learning pods. Learning pods where families will pitch in 5, 10, 15, in some instances we're hearing as much as $20,000, $25,000. They'll join up to hire teachers, coaches to work with their children. So five mm. families come together. Uh, each spends ten to fifteen thousand dollars. Let's say they hire a teacher for fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars, and that teacher works with those five children for all of this COVID pandemic year. Those children are actually expected to grow, to gain, to out, you know, to actually move beyond whatever learning loss, whatever they would learn in this year, to actually get ahead. While we know as a nation that black and brown children in the main are falling further and further behind. Yeah, that, that, and not that, uh, about it. Yeah, that teacher-student ratio. Um, you know, I, yeah. I'm a former teacher. I was a theater. I taught theater in the magnet school uh, for the Indianapolis mm-hmm. Public Schools. I was actually the head of that. And so that, yeah, it makes all the difference in the world if I've got, you know, you've got a teacher and you've got, you know, five, ten students. I mean, the the care, mm-hmm. the personal time and um, and attention given, yes, that is accelerated tremendously versus the 30 and 40 kids <laughs> per room juggling exactly. match for 50 minutes. Uh, you know, so that's a huge difference. And you're right, their, their growth... Um, will uh, be exponential uh, as opposed right. to just what it would have been in a normal circumstance. That is insane, but it's true. Indeed, <laughs> but it's true. And and you can look in so many different places and settings. 
again, looking at COVID, just the response like with respect to healthcare. You know, um, when we began seeing very early on that this disease would disproportionately devastate, disproportionately have a devastating impact on black and brown communities. Did we see, you know, PPE resources being rushed to those communities to shore them up? No. Right? Mm. It's that type of thing. That's how mm-hmm. you that that's that's how you look at how racism still presents today. What you have to do is that one of the easiest ways I tell people to 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 kind of um um you know discern whether or not, you know, there is a racist element in a policy or practice or a way of doing things is if you apply a racial equity frame, if you simply say, given the circumstances that present for this particular segment of our population, um, if we implement this way of managing a problem or working to solve a problem, will they be differently impacted than others? Right? Mm-hmm. We see it today in pay and in, 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 in gender and race pay inequity. Why is it today that still today, uh, black Americans with a master's degree, uh, are just, just slightly ahead of white, uh, persons with an associate degree? I didn't say a bachelor degree. I said a master's degree. Black persons with a master's degree are just slightly ahead of white persons with an associate degree. Why is it that, uh, you know, that, that, that often black people only begin to start making marginal gains in terms of pay when they get a bachelor's degree, but a white person is you know, expected to have about the same level of earnings with just a high school degree. Mm. That's systemic yeah. racism. Absolutely, absolutely, and that, that's that's definitely something quite powerful to consider and to chew on. <laughs> you know, this is mm-hmm. yeah, the inequity is 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 evident, and um, I'm glad that you were able to articulate uh, different sort of uh, benchmarks that that you know members of the audience can can take a look at for themselves and and weigh that. So that's. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. We are now getting ready to take another break. I am happy as peaches to have my guest today, Jennifer Jones Austin, um, and we are talking about systemic racism. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Bill Nyers Inspires right here on the Inspired Choices Network. We'll be right back. Today, we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Bill Myers Inspires as he and his guests take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. Emmy Award-winning actor Bill Myers is an accomplished actor, jazz musician, filmmaker, writer, educator, and speaker. As a biracial man who's both black and white, Bill leverages his background, talent, and voice through creativity, compassion, and connection as activism for social justice to focus on uniting the divide and compelling change. Bill Myers Inspires encourages listeners to look within themselves and take decisive action to make a positive difference. For more information, visit his website, BillMyersInspires.com, and sign in for the latest news and updates.
You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires here on the Inspired Choices Network. We're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's get back to the conversation. Welcome back. We are talking about systemic racism today with my guest, Jennifer Jones Austin. Um, yeah, you, you just laid out uh, a, a pretty significant case there <laughs> with regards to uh, uh, observations and how we may be able to detect systemic racism as it exists in our current COVID circumstance. Uh, many of those factors, of course, preceded COVID, uh, but uh, is is certainly brought to light uh, by the COVID circumstance, and that's mm-hmm. that's pretty powerful stuff. So, so now I want to I want to take a turn real quick because you are the head of uh, and have been involved with many many not for profits, and uh, I want to turn the attention to the the idea of of not for profits and perhaps um, the different kinds of not-for-profits, and or the different ways in which certain not-for-profits are treated differently uh, in the, the land of, uh, of, of providing services and the challenges that they, um, they uh, have moving forward. So go ahead, take it from there. I'm just Ooh, sort of so setting that stage. so much to be said there. Yeah, so I know. Much to be I know. That's that's one of those uh, um, uh, uh, situations where somebody says something and it's like it it, it hits many different nerves and you're like, ooh, 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 ooh. So yeah, I had I'll trouble getting it out of my mouth, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, let's be let's just like it's staying in the lane of talking about race and 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 racism and how. It presents in in every pillar, every facet of our society. So, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to services, um, supports for people who, you know, day-to-day are struggling to make ends meet, one of the things that uh, I have, you know, found interesting over the course of my uh, career is that, one, uh, you know, racism is present in who uh, you know? Who, who is considered to be worthy of running these institutions, and who is considered to add value at the table when thinking about the services that people need? And over the course of my career, I can tell you that that presents in everything from um, you know, for so many years, it you know, social services were were in many ways founded by uh, communities of color to take care of their own. We saw that in the early 1900s, you know, it was black women who founded a lot of programs to serve and support uh, black women who were in need. Uh, you know, we a lot of service through uh, the Divine Nine and other social organizations lifting up and serving communities in need. Uh, and a lot of nonprofits grew out of that work. Uh, but, you know, when the government got involved and really started funding uh, social services, one of the first questions that, you know, some state governments asked was, well, you know, we have to figure out who is the, quote, worthy poor. 
who are the, quote, worthy poor? So some people mm. were considered more worthy than others. White women struggling to make ends meet, more worthy of charitable giving and supports than were black men and black women. Okay. What then started happening, you know, even with, uh, you know, the New Deal and, uh, and 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 benefits, government benefits becoming you know uh, uh, more prevalent, was that we started seeing you know with like the war on drugs and and welfare, the welfare mom being considered the black woman, even though more people in America, more white persons, because they in many ways are larger in number, are on welfare. The stereotype for the uh, the person receiving public assistance became the black woman and the black woman who was having so many children and taking advantage of the system. And then enter the social service organizations to care for them. Well, when government got involved and started giving out contracts for services, people realized there's business to be made here. And what we saw growing were uh, sometimes religious institutions, Jewish mm-hmm. organizations, Catholic organizations, and Protestant organizations receiving big contracts from the government to uh, run social service programs. And lo and behold, we started seeing who did they put at the helm. They put white people at the helm, even though they were caring for black and brown people very often, and even though the staff very often were black and brown people, particularly in urban settings like Indianapolis, uh, Chicago, New York City, uh, you know, um, Detroit, Michigan, New Orleans. Mm-hmm. So the people who were worthy to be leaders of these organizations were the white people. And um, the black people, you know, if they you know, if they were fortunate, got to be the case managers or assisting with case management, sometimes mm. not even being the supervisors. All of a sudden, philanthropy steps in, and they've got to start, you know, helping to fund these organizations. Well, the big organizations are worthy of our funding, but the small, community-based, storefront-like uh, organizations that are possibly led by black and brown people, they don't know what they're doing. They don't have affluent board members. We cannot give money to them. Mm. And you know, and those are just some examples, but it continues. It goes on and on. Uh, we see even still today when government decides, you know, what policies and programs they are going to fund or they're going to defund, um, very often they bring the big institutions to the table that are often more often than not white-led. And the person, the black or the brown person who's in the community who can relate directly, the, the leader of the nonprofit in the community who can relate directly to community community people who are suffering, that person doesn't get to come to the table. And so then you have white leaders saying what is good, what is right, what is best for black and brown children, for black and brown youth, for black and brown elderly persons, for black and brown so people it, who have mental health needs. Yeah. So so it's a continued perpetuation of the same mindset that you were talking about as far as what uh, what poor are worthy to be mm-hmm. assisted. Mm-hmm. So now you take that from the, the governmental side, and now we put in, uh, you know, executive director – uh, who is making decisions at the organization level using the exact same mindset. Absolutely. Determining, and, and please, wow. please. The, the, making these decisions, and, and you know, I'll give you a 
just a striking example. Just a, you know, it's, it's, it's incredulous. It's despicable. And it happened here in my, in my city. So my organization, uh, about five years ago, uh, did some research. We were looking at the career ladders uh, in the nonprofit uh, human services, social services community. And what we realized was that black um, black persons were um, working in these institutions, very often masters educated, but could not get beyond the case manager level. And there didn't appear to be a career ladder for them to rise up to supervisor, director of a program, and perhaps ultimately become executive director of the organization. As we dug uh, more deeply into this phenomenon, we realized that what also was happening is that they were being paid less than livable wages. We learned in New York City that 40% of the human services nonprofit workers that had uh, that were working in uh, agencies with big New York City contracts were being paid less than $12 an hour. Less than $12 an hour. Less than $12 an hour is about $25,000 a year. Mm-hmm. These were case managers. They, you know, they weren't volunteers, you know, getting a stipend. They weren't working a part-time. They weren't interns. They were working 40-plus hours in, uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, long a and hard. week. That's long and hard. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and they and were hard. making $12 an hour. 20, uh, 40% of these persons were making less than $12 an hour. We then dug deeper and found that 25% were making less than $9 an hour. These persons in the main, majority, great majority of them, women of color. And women of color, primary household uh, breadwinners. These women were actually eligible for the same income supports they were signing clients up for. Well, here's what happened. We identified this problem. We decided that we are going to advocate for changes in city policy and practice to secure a livable wage of a minimum of $15 per hour for these persons. They are many of them masters educated. We went to the nonprofit community and we talked with many of the organizations that these people being paid less than fair wages were working for. And would you believe that we heard repeatedly and consistently from the executive directors most of whom were white persons, actually all of the people from whom we heard when we presented this issue, that they would rather lobby the city to get some more money for their contracts, but they were not willing to be told that they had to pay these staff more money. Mm. So here they are. They have on their staff people they know are making unfair wages are not able to put food on the table for their families, working 40-plus hours a week, not able to put food on the table for their families unless they get food supports and other public Mm. assistance, income supports. And they were willing to let that stand because it wasn't that they didn't want more money from the government. They wanted more money, but they wanted to do with it what they thought was best. That's what systemic institutional racism looks like. I'm okay earning a a six-figure-plus salary, and I'm okay with you being a case manager 
and not being able to put food on the table. And more often than not, you are black and I am white. Mm, mm, mm. We changed that. I should tell you, we changed that. We said we're not. Yay, you. Yay, you. And we pushed (laughs) forward and we worked with the city of New York and we got a livable wage for um, everybody, a minimum livable wage. And that was $15 and it's been going up since. Excellent. Excellent. Good job. Good job, man. That's crazy. That's crazy. Because because those people that are working, that are employed, that are making less than a livable wage, it you know, the, the mm-hmm. governmental structure uh is kind of its own trap. So to even right. to be able to qualify for whether it be welfare, right. you know, food stamps, whatever, puts them in a jeopardy because they yes. got a job, but you're saying you you know you need government assistance. You know, it, again, it it it's a it's trick. Insane. You know, what I mean? it's an right. evil trick. Right, and then um, let me uh, let me give you one more example that just I just learned recently that blew me mm-hmm. away. Across this nation, there are what uh, what is termed community foundations. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure Indianapolis has at least a few uh, mm-hmm. organizations that you know may have been founded by. Uh, 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 benevolent persons in the city, you know, to support community-based organizations and community community development needs. Mm-hmm. Research has recently shown that community foundations give only 1.8% of their annual funding to black communities. of their annual funding to black communities. And I'll go you one step further since we're talking about systemic racism. Of that 1.8%, the research showed when they collected, aggregated the data and sought to understand it, that of that 1.8% going to black communities, only 3% goes to what is termed structural change. Said differently, only 3% of that 1.8% supports policy, social policy, uh, and and advocacy work. Only 3% of that 1.8% supports trying to change the structural racism systemic practices that keep people from getting down, getting ahead. Said differently, These institutions will take that 1.8%, which is abysmal to begin with, and the great majority of that money goes to food programs, may go to rental assistance, may go to after-school programming. Now, that's Mm -hmm. not bad. That's good. That's important. But food programs and rental assistance, to give you an assist, do not change lives uh, materially and sustainably. They Mm -hmm. help you to manage poverty. They do not bring about the eradication of poverty. And so what you see happening is philanthropy, working with government to just keep people in a holding position. They don't want to change systems because if I fund an institution to dismantle poverty-perpetuating policy, now I'm giving people an opportunity. I'm giving them, I'm extending an arm to help lift them up. Whereas if I just continue to fund the food pantry, I keep them, 
I keep them in need. Right? Yeah. The old adage, Chinese proverb, uh, feed a man a fish, feed him for a day. Teach him how to fish, feed him for a lifetime. If right. I just keep giving you the food, then I'm just helping you to manage your hunger. But if I work on trying to change the system and give you the real supports that you need, then I run the risk of you actually no longer needing that handout and actually becoming you know, a competitor, a, com- you know, a more competitive concern in this environment. Wow. That's, you know, it, it, yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah. Well, let me, let me do this. We are going to, we're going to take, I, I need to breathe with that one. So we're going to take a brief little pause. Uh, my guest today, Jennifer Jones Austin, we're talking about systemic racism. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires. We'll be right back. Today, we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Bill Myers Inspires as he and his guests take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. Emmy Award-winning actor Bill Myers is an accomplished actor, jazz musician, filmmaker, writer, educator, and speaker. As a biracial man who's both black and white, Bill leverages his background, talents, and voice through creativity, compassion, and connection as activism for social justice to focus on uniting the divide and compelling change. Bill Myers Inspires encourages listeners to look within themselves and take decisive action to make a positive difference. For more information, visit his website, BillMyersInspires.com, and sign in for the latest news and updates. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires here on the Inspired Choices Network. We're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's get back to the conversation. Welcome back. We're here with my guest today, Jennifer Jones Austin, and we're talking about systemic racism. Uh, you're listening to Bill Myers Inspires. I'm your host, Bill Myers. We only have a few minutes left, and I just want to touch upon a couple of things. Uh, first of all, Jennifer, it is a pleasure having you here today. There is so much to to dive into, and unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do all of that in this one, but I certainly hope that you have enjoyed yourself and you would do me the the honor of coming back some other time because I do want Just to. Just say when. <laughs> oh, excellent, excellent, because you have a remarkable stories uh, that I definitely want the world to know because they are fabulous. And uh, so, uh, but, you know, I, w- I want to share a story with you. I was just talking with a fellow musician who was, I mean, he was music director for, uh, you know, uh, 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 Tony Bennett and, and, and uh, you know, Johnny Mathis, one of my heroes, and he lives down in Bloomington, Indiana. And I was talking to him this morning about uh, about racism and that sort of thing. And he was telling me, he's a white gentleman, and he was telling me about, you know, how few uh, black players were, were 
were uh, invited uh, on rare occasions to be a part of the main mix. And these are the guys that were handling all the studio stuff, all of the touring shows, you know, all the high-profile music opportunities, employment opportunities. And so few blacks were involved with that. And one of the things that he mentioned, and, and he is a dear, dear friend and a dear friend of Witherspoon, is also Witherspoon Presbyterian mm-hmm. Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. And um, and he mentioned that, you know, a lot of times the, the, the white contractors would use well, this gentleman, uh, you know, a lot of times it was he can't read music or he's not proficient mm-hmm. or whatever. But the other thing, and, and that's true, some guys, you know, really obviously don't meet the qualifications. If it's a reading job, you've you got to be able to read this, right? So, but not all of them are that. And there are plenty of guys who can read. So when you had a guy who was competent and able to meet, um, meet that job's uh, requirements, uh, then the excuse was, but he doesn't have any experience playing this. Mm-hmm. And my whole thing was, dude, but unless you wow. give me, let me in, I, I don't have the opportunity to gain the experience. Right. So therefore, if it's not one thing, then it's another. But it's a constant right. roadblock to defend this foul mm-hmm. sort of uh, 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 injustice that's in your face and, and these, these excuses that don't hold any water because if you don't give someone an opportunity, and so I said, well, what about the little white kids that are graduating from college that step out? They don't have any experience. They just got a damn degree. So at the end of the day, they don't have any experience, but you don't look at them in the same manner, and so you welcome them with open arms, and you do not throw that same rhetoric out as the excuse because – if if that was the case, then no one would ever work <laughs> because we don't have any oh, you, experience because it requires an opportunity. So, right. so you know, so anyway, right. yeah. so I was I was having the conversation because of this conversation today and systemic racism and wanting to gain a better understanding even within the music community. We are out of time. Jennifer, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I, and it's I hope that you... It's been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, and I, and you brought so much valuable information. And so you're listening to Bill Myers Inspires. We'll be here next week. Thank you so much I'm for tuning inspired. in. I'm <laughs> inspired. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for spending your afternoon right here with us at Bill Myers Inspires. Remember, we're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Inspired Choices Network. Remember to take time this week to take a breath, and look within yourself and figure out how you can make a positive difference in this world. Spread the word, and we'll see you here next Friday.